Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is James, and, and I think to echo what Mike and Tim said, uh, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, it's days like this where you, you know, I, my mom's far away, and, and I, I do miss her. But it's also a chance to celebrate the moms in in this family that God has given me. So thank you for all that you do, and uh, we celebrate you and we love you. Um, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones with you, um, we are in James. And I wonder if you could turn to James chapter 1. But uh, before we read, um, can I pray? And we can go from there. Our Heavenly Lord, our Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your kindness and your grace to us. Thank you for your many beautiful gifts. Thank you for the gift of moms. Thank you for the gift of your son and the gift of your word. And Lord, as we come before your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you'd open our minds, and that you'd speak to us. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. Okay, so in your Bibles or on your smartphones, we're in James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Would you read with me? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So this morning, we're in the beginning of our new mini-series in James, as we work our way through his letter. And so far in the series, we've been asking the question, what does real faith look like in real life? What does real faith look like practically in real life, in the valley, in your homes, in your work, in your schools? In other words, we're asking the question of how do we live as followers of Jesus today? How do we live as followers of Jesus today? And this question is really at the heart of James's letter, and indeed it's the question at the heart of our passage this morning. And I think to help us understand this passage this morning, I think it'll be helpful if we jump back to verses 16 to 18 first. And I think it's helpful because verses 16 to 18 kind of act as a, a hinge in James's letter, uh, transitioning us from one body of thought to the next. So in your Bibles, would you look a few verses above with me to James chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 16. James writes, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. What mustn't we be deceived about? Well, the whole of chapter one so far has been about experiencing trials and temptations. James is writing to a people who have suffered persecution, poverty, and isolation. He's writing to a people who've been tempted to give in to their sinful desires, to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness, and even to leave the faith. And being aware of their circumstances, being aware of their current trials and temptations, James counsels these confused Christians saying to them, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't get the wrong idea about this now. Don't be led astray. And what he's saying is this. Don't let your present circumstances, your present trials and temptations, don't let them distort your view of God. Don't let them destroy your trust in God. And don't let them drag you away from God, from his word and his people. You know, James is saying, don't let your present experiences deceive you. Don't let them deceive you about who God is and what he's like. My dear brothers and sisters, 
don't be deceived. Well, why? Would you look with me at verse 17? Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Far from being absent in our trials and far from being the source of our temptations, in verse 17, James reminds us of who God really is and what he's really like. James reminds us that we have a God and Father in heaven who does not change, who does not change. A Father of the heavenly lights who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A Father who is good. A Father who has given every good and perfect gift in your life to you. A Father who calls you my son and my daughter. A Father who loves you. A good, good Father. And to illustrate just how good our God is, James writes in verse 18 that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Now, out of the overflow of his goodness, love, and grace, our heavenly Father has chosen to give us birth through the word of truth. And what he means by the word of truth is the gospel. And through trusting in this word of truth, in trusting in the gospel, God has caused us to be born again. Born again, not of flesh and bone, but born by the Holy Spirit of God now living in us. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our sin. All of us, bad seed, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, God has made us alive in him. All of us now are washed redeemed, restored seeds that God has brought up as a kind of first fruits of his harvest of salvation. Through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, James says that we are first fruits. And I don't know if any of you go around talking like that when you think of your identity as a Christian. Yes, we, we know that we are sons and daughters of God, that's true. Yes, we are heirs and ambassadors of his kingdom. But it's equally true, according to James in verse 18, to say that we are first fruits, that our identity as the church is that we are the first fruits of all that God created. We are first fruits. But what does that mean? And, and why would James say that? Well, to be obvious and to be quite simple, first fruits are the first fruits that appear on a tree. First fruits are first fruits. Think about those initial small oranges that appear on an orange tree. First fruits are the first fruits that a tree bears. But here's the point. What are these first fruits a sign of? More fruit. Second fruits, third fruits, tenth fruits, fortieth fruits, and so on. First fruits are a sign that there is more fruit to come. And James is saying that we, as the church, as the people of God, that we are kind of first fruits for all that God has created. Just as the first fruits that appear on a tree are a sign that there is more fruit to come, James is saying that we, that our new birth through the gospel, our redemption, restoration, renewal through the word of truth, that that's just the beginning. That that's just a foretaste. There's more to come. James is saying that our new birth through the gospel is evidence of God's great salvation plan to redeem and restore 
everything that he's created, all things. The Bible tells us that in his mercy and grace, God is reconciling all things back to himself, all things, things in heaven, things on earth, the cosmos beyond us, the systems and institutions around us, the very sinful hearts in us. God is redeeming all things back to himself. And that's the story of the Bible. And that's the story of the world. That's the story that every one of us is caught up in, whether we know that or not. It's the story of God moving all things towards salvation. And salvation is that day when God is going to make all things fully new again. When his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When every tear will be washed away. When every hurt, every injustice, every bit of suffering that you've experienced in your life will be accounted for. When justice and righteousness will flow down the streets like a mighty river. When everything sad will become untrue and when God will again dwell with his people. All things fully redeemed, all things fully restored, all things made new. And that's what God is doing. And that's where the world is heading. And that's our destiny as followers of Jesus. And according to James here in verse 18, God has chosen us, the church, to be the kind of first fruits of that salvation. That the church, as dim as it may be, is meant to be a snapshot of what God is doing in the rest of the world. One theologian put it this way, the church is the model home of the community that heaven will one day be like. The church is the model home of what the neighborhood of heaven is going to look like. And church, because God has chosen to give us birth through the word of truth, our presence in this world should be like the first rays of light after a long darkness. We are like the first spots of grass peeking through out of the snow and signaling the end of a long winter. We're a foretaste of God's new world. Because of the gospel, we are first fruits. We have an identity and we have a destiny. So in summary so far, James is saying, don't be deceived. Know who God is. Know who you are as a result. And know where this world is going. And here's why this is so important to understand before we move to verses 19 to 21. And indeed, before we move into the rest of the letter. Here's why it's so important. James is saying that if you truly want to change, if you truly want to become more like Jesus, if you truly want to persevere in your trials and say no to your temptations, then you need to understand your identity and destiny in Christ because of the gospel. If you truly want to live as a follower of Jesus in fullness, in joy, in life, then you need to understand your identity and destiny in Christ. You know deep down who you are and where you're going in light of the gospel. You know what God has done for you through the death and resurrection of his son. You need to know that he's redeemed you, restored you, made you new, and that he's not finished with you or anyone else or the rest of creation. You need to be embraced by it, stunned by it, captivated by it. 
You need to be caught up into the great story of God redeeming all things back to himself because that's how we change. Because that's how we persevere and that's how we live as followers of Jesus. As I was thinking of how to explain this and make sense of it to myself, I, 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 I thought of the, the story of the princess and the frog. I, I wonder if you remember it. Now, in, in all honesty, I'm a little fuzzy on the details and, and the whole story and, and how it actually goes, I'm not sure. But what I do remember, and I think it's kind of like the climactic moment of the story, is that there's this princess and she kisses the frog and the frog turns into a prince. Does, does that sound about right? <laughs> I mean, you talk about like dodgy relationship advice. Like you have to kiss a few frogs to get to your prince. <laughs> no. But, but think about that frog slash prince with me. For most of his life, he was a frog. He looked like a frog. He moved like a frog. He ate whatever frogs ate. And he probably sounded like a frog too. You know, like ribbit. Uh. <laughs> but he was a frog. He was always going to be a frog. Being a frog was his identity. Being a frog was his destiny. But then along came a girl, as is so often the case. But the princess comes, and she kisses the frog, and the frog is transformed. No longer is he a frog. No, now he's a prince. His identity forever changed. His destiny forever changed. No longer is he a frog. No, he's a prince. But do you think after all of this that he still lived like a frog? No. Because his identity was changed, because his destiny was changed, this prince no longer lived like a frog. He lived as who he is, as where he is going. He lived as a prince. And I think that's kind of what James is saying here in verse 18. He's saying that before you can live like a follower of Jesus, before you can live like a prince, You need to understand that you are no longer a frog. You need to understand that your identity and destiny in Jesus has changed you and then live in light of that. Okay? So far, so good? So how do we live as followers of Jesus? We start by knowing our identity and destiny as the first fruits of God's salvation harvest. Brother and sister, you are first fruits. And if this is where we start, if we start with our identity and destiny in Christ, then how do we live as first fruits today? How do we practically live out our day-to-day lives in light of our gospel identity and destiny? Would you look with me at verses 19 and 20 again? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So how do we live as first fruits today? Well, according to James, it's by being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In contrast, how do we not live as first fruits today? By being slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. And as we work our way through James's letter together, we'll see that James addresses these specific behaviors again and again. They are problems in the community that he wants to root out. So let's look at each behavior in turn. Firstly, quick to listen and slow to speak. 
Now, it would seem that one of the more pronounced and concerning ways that these Christians were not living as God's first fruits was that they weren't listening to one another. They were getting into these shouting matches, always trying to speak over the other, always trying to make their point heard, always trying to silence the other, always speaking but never listening, always trying to be heard but never hearing, always quick to speak but never quick to listen. And instead of living as the first fruits of God's kingdom, instead of modeling the reconciling love, compassion, and grace of our Lord Jesus, instead of lovingly, generously, and patiently listening to their brothers and sisters, these Christians spoke and spoke and spoke. They spoke quickly and they spoke often. And when they felt like they weren't being heard, what would they do? They would speak louder and louder and louder. But what's the result of that? I wonder if you'd be able to answer this question, even from your own personal experiences. What are the results of always speaking but never listening? Of always being spoken to but never being heard? Perhaps phrases like this come to mind. He never listens to me. He never takes the time to ask how I'm doing or what I think. Or maybe this. She always makes me feel small insignificant, unworthy, that my life is somehow lesser, or they never understand me. They never understand what I'm trying to say. No one understands. What are the results of always speaking but never listening? Off the top of my head, broken relationships, fractures and frictions in families, hostility in the community, resentment, hurt, disillusionment, Ultimately, the results of always speaking but never listening is that people are pushed to the side. They're left alone, not heard, not cared for, not loved. And James is saying that this is not right, that this is not good fruit, that this is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. No, what it means to live as a follower of Jesus is to be slow to speak. Notice that James is not saying never speak but only be slow to speak. In other words, before you say something, think. Slow down, hesitate, delay your response, and consider what you're about to say. Be slow to speak. Because if you're slow to speak, then you'll be able to listen. And I mean truly listen. And when you're able to listen, then you'll be able to understand. And when you're able to understand, then you'll be able to love. James says, be quick to listen. Because listening is an act of love. To listen is to sacrifice. To listen is to serve. To listen is to extend the love of Christ to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says this about listening and following Jesus. It reads, the first service one owes to others in the community involves listening to them. Just as our love for God begins with listening to God's word, the beginning of love for other Christians is learning to listen to them. God's love for us is shown by the fact that God not only gives us God's word, but he also lends us God's ear. We do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. So often Christians, especially preachers, 
think that their only service is always to have to offer something, to have something to say when they're together with people. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people seek a sympathetic ear and do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking even when they should be listening. Bonhoeffer says the first service we owe to our brothers and sisters in this church, the first service we owe to our brothers and sisters in this church is to listen to them. For each of us to offer one another the gift of understanding, to offer one another the gift of acceptance, even if it's not necessarily agreement, and to offer the gift of taking one another seriously, to listen. The theologian David Augsburger once wrote, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. To that I would say, to listen is to love. So be quick to listen. And here are a few suggestions for how we can listen as followers of Jesus. Firstly, start with listening to God. Being able to listen well to others starts with being able to listen to the word of God. So start by listening to the words of Scripture. Listen to everything God has to say about himself, his nature and his character. Listen to the riches of the gospel, his love for us, and our need for him. If you want to listen well to others, then you need to start by listening to God. And from there, we can lovingly listen to people by offering them the gift of an unhurried, undistracted presence by staying curious and assuming the best of others, by asking questions and then not assuming to know the answers. Here's an important one, by resisting to put our own meanings in other people's words, by repeating back what we hear for clarification and connection, by hearing not only with our ears, but our hearts and our eyes. And lastly, we can lovingly listen to people by listening as givers of grace, not as lawyers seeking to prosecute. Common Ground South Penn, may we be a people who listen to understand, who listen to serve, who listen to love with the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. James says, be quick to listen and be slow to speak. Would you look with me again at verses 19 to 20, because secondly, James says, be slow to become angry. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, the community that James was writing to were not just bad listeners. They were actually also an angry people. They were bitter people, people who would flare up in a fits of blinding rage. And recognizing that their behavior was actually spoiling their communal health, and that their behavior was rotting away as their witness, as the God's first fruit community, James now speaks directly to their anger. And what he says here about anger and, and how he counsels them to change is, is actually quite profound. He says, everyone should be slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Firstly, do you notice in our verses that anger is not inherently sinful? That anger is not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Our passage doesn't say, don't get angry. No, it says, 
don't get angry quickly. James is saying, be slow to anger, but anger in and of itself is not sinful. But why? Well, because God gets angry. At the death of his friend Lazarus, Jesus gets angry. At the greed and exploitation at the temple, Jesus gets angry. At the hypocrisy of religious leaders, Jesus gets angry. And if anger were wrong, then Jesus wouldn't get angry because he's perfect, but he does. And here's why. Tim Keller once said that anger is energy released to defend and protect something. Say it again. Anger is energy released to defend and protect something. So when Jesus sees someone hurt, he gets angry, he protects. When Jesus sees truth being hurt, he gets angry, he defends. In other words, anger is not necessarily wrong. In fact, anger, if released properly, if released to defend and protect what is good and beautiful and honorable, then anger is actually appropriate. Then anger is actually godly and good. But James is not talking about any anger here. He's talking about a kind of anger that's gone bad. And James mentions two ways to tell if the anger in your life has gone bad. Anger that has gone bad is firstly quick. It's anger that flares up in a second. It explodes. It's one minute you're all fine, and the next you're out of control. It's quick. Secondly, anger that has gone bad leads to unrighteousness. In other words, it's anger that leads to evil and brokenness and regret. I wonder if you'd think with me about the Hulk. Now, in comic books, Bruce Banner is a brilliant scientist. He's intelligent, he's kind, he's even a little bit scrawny and timid. But as soon as something triggers him, in a split-second moment, he explodes in anger and transforms into the Hulk, a huge green monster out of control, leaving only destruction in his wake, buildings destroyed, cars smashed, and lives severely affected by his rage. And it's only after he's cooled down that he turns back into Bruce. And all that he's left to do is wallow in the destruction he has caused and the deep-seated regret that he has. And I think that's something of what James is saying here. Anger that that has gone bad is quick, it explodes, it's out of control, and it leads you to say and do things that only cause brokenness and regret. But more than that, I think James is not only talking about the external outbursts or the fits of rage that happen in our lives. He's definitely speaking to those, but I think he's also speaking about the deep-seated bitterness that lives in us. For some people, anger comes out fiery and violent. For others, anger comes out passively, in bitterness, in holding grudges, in resentment towards people. Sometimes it even comes out as a, a violent passivity. James is speaking to all the anger that has gone bad in our lives, to the external outbursts, but also to the underlying bitterness, fear, and pride in our hearts too. He says everyone should be slow to become angry because human anger only leads to hurt, brokenness, and regret. It doesn't lead to righteousness. It doesn't lead to joy. It doesn't lead to life. So James says, be slow to anger. 
And I think it's only appropriate to stop here and to speak to those of you who are, are angry today and, and ask you, are you an angry person? And actually, one of the first things that you have to do, one of the most important, but also one of the, most, one of the hardest things for you to do is actually to acknowledge that you're angry. And that anger is an issue in your life. Because the problem with anger is the angrier a person is, the more convinced they are that it's the other person's problem and not their own. So are you an angry person? Are you angry with people? With what they've done to you? With what they've said to you or about you? With how they've hurt you? Are you angry at the circumstances of your life? And where you find yourself right now at the hardships that you've experienced or continue to experience? Are you angry with God, His Word, His people, the church? Or with His apparent absence when you needed Him most? Are you angry with yourself, with your failures, with your unmet expectations, with your body or with the person that you've become? Are you an angry person, someone who explodes, loses control, and who lashes out at those who love him? Are you an angry person, someone who harbors deep bitterness towards God, people, and yourselves? My brother and my sister, are you angry? Has, your ang- has the anger in your life become like chains imprisoning you? Has the bitterness in your life become like heavy weights dragging you down? Has the anger and bitterness in your life become like dirty, smelly, heavy old clothes that you just can't take off? To you, to you, it's my prayer that verses 21 will speak truth and freedom and hope. Would you look with me again to God's word? Verse 21, therefore get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. In response to our anger and our bitterness, and in truth, in response to our sin, James calls us to get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. He says, get rid of it. Take it off, put it away. And the word he uses is actually an image of taking off dirty clothing. I wonder if you'd remember back with me to when you were a kid. And I wonder if you can remember back to a time when it just rained and rained and rained, almost as if the shower tap of the heavens was left running. Do you remember what it was like to go outside on days like that? The rain bucketing down from all sides, pools of water where fields of grass were once were. And underfoot, soft, squelchy, slippery, muddy, But what did you do as a kid? Or at least, what did I do as a kid, if given half a chance? We'd go, we'd run, we'd play, we'd dive in the water, we'd tackle our friends, we'd jump in the mud, we'd have a blast, it'd be amazing. At least while it lasted. But then after a while, we would be wet, we would be cold, and we would be dirty. We'd be sopping from head to toe, we'd be freezing, and our clothes would be filthy. And then we'd want to go back inside. We would want to be washed and warmed and put into fresh, clean clothes. But before we could do that, what needed to happen? Before we could be cleaned, before we could be warmed, and before we could put on fresh, new clothes, what did we have to do? 
We had to take off those dirty, smelly, heavy old clothes. And I think that's what James is saying here. He's saying that all that anger and bitterness, all that inability to love and listen, all that sin in your life is like wearing dirty, smelly, heavy old clothes. So he says, just get rid of them. Take them off. Throw them away. Leave them alone. In other words, he's saying repent. Get rid of all your moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Take off those dirty, smelly, heavy old clothes. And as you do that, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So how do we live as first fruits today? How do we live as followers of Jesus in our daily lives? How do we be quick to listen, slow to speak? How do we be slow to anger? How do we get rid of the anger, the bitterness, and all the other moral filth in our lives? Well, according to James here in verse 21, we do so by humbly accepting the word planted in you, which can save you. By humbly accepting the word. The same word of truth in verse 18. The same word that birthed us, the same word that washed us, redeemed us, and restored us into new seeds. And the same word that continues to work in us, growing us, bearing fruit in us, and saving us. In other words, I hope that you can see that we live as first fruits today by humbly accepting the gospel. The word planted in you which can save you is the gospel. And we live out our day-to-day lives as followers of Jesus by humbly submitting our desires, our behaviors, and indeed our whole lives to the gospel. And don't miss what James just did here in verse 21. James took the people's concerning behaviors, their inability to listen, their unloving words, their angry hearts, and he took them straight to the heart of the problem. He took them straight to their acceptance and submission to the gospel. James is saying that if you struggle to listen, then you need to accept the gospel. That if you're angry, then you need to accept the gospel. If you are bitter, then you need to accept the gospel afresh. Because the gospel is the only thing that is truly able to save you. Listening techniques are good. Anger management is helpful. But only the gospel truly saves. Only the gospel truly transforms. Only the gospel can soften our hard heart, hardened by bitterness. Only the gospel can replace an angry, proud spirit with a humble, peaceable one. Only the gospel can truly save you. The gospel. In other words, the good news. The good news that our God in his infinite love and grace would come as a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. That he would live a perfect, sinless life. The life that we should all live, but we don't and we can't. That our sin has separated us from God, leaving us only deserving of judgment and death. But that Jesus died on the cross, receiving the full force of God's just anger and punishment for sin. That there on the cross he died for your sin and my sin, paying the debt we owed, and that he rose again, defeating sin and death, providing a way for us to be reconciled back to God. And that we, the church, through trusting in faith in his finished work and not our own works, that we are the first fruits of God reconciling all the world 
back to himself. The gospel. And we all need to humbly accept this gospel every day. We all need to submit our desires and our behaviors to this gospel every day. And we all need to take off our dirty, sinful clothes and embrace the gospel in order to live in order to live as God's first fruits each and every day. And so, as we conclude, I'd like to say one last thing to those of you who are angry. I think that if we're going to begin the road of recovery from anger and bitterness, that we need to start with the gospel, that we need to humbly accept the gospel, and that we need to let the gospel reach deep down to the root of your anger. To those of you who are angry today, would you consider Ephesians 4, verse 31 to 32? Similarly, Paul writes, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. So start with the gospel, with your own sinfulness, with your own personal offense against God. Recognize the anger that you caused him, the anger that was poured out on him on the cross, the pain you caused him. And yet he forgave you. And just as Christ chose to forgive you, would you start the process of forgiving each other by choosing to forgive? Forgiveness begins with a decision but forgiveness is also a process. So would you start the process by humbly accepting the gospel which is able to save you? And lastly, to all of us, Common Ground South Penn, would we be people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Would we be a people who get rid of all our moral filths and evil that is so prevalent in our world, in our valley, in our hearts around us, would we get rid of our bitterness? Would we get rid of our, our anger? And would we humbly accept the gospel, the word planted in you, which can save you? Common Ground Church, South Penn, would we live as followers of Jesus today? Can I pray for us? And as I do, maybe the band can come up. I think there's a number of ways that we can respond to God's word this morning. I think maybe for some of you, it might be the need to understand your identity and destiny in Christ. To understand who God is and what he's done for you, and therefore who you are as a child of God, as an heir of his kingdom, and also as a first fruit. That before you start thinking about behavioral change, you need to start with heart change. You need to let the gospel touch your heart, change you. So maybe some of you haven't done that for the first time. Maybe some of you have walked away and haven't, and haven't responded to God or acknowledged him for a long time either. I think maybe a helpful first step would be to go to him and ask for forgiveness. And ask for freedom and ask for joy. I, I think another way that we can respond is 
to consider in our hearts how we have maybe wronged other people, how we've been slow to listen to them, and how we've been angry and bitter. That our sin has been like heavy old smelly clothes and we need to take it off. The first thing I would call you to do is repent. Repent. Take off those dirty clothes and as you do, humbly accept the gospel. Gracious Lord, thank you that you are so kind, that you are so patient, and that you are so good. Thank you that you are a father who never changes, that you love us, and that you meet us where we are. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we respond now in song and as we reflect on your word preached, that you would do a work in us, that we would be a people who live as followers of you today, Lord. A people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, and live as your first fruits in this world. For your glory, Jesus, we pray. Amen.